I apologize for the vertical takeoff we're going to have this morning in our Sunday school class because we're running quickly out of time, but um, I would like to have you go right to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been discussing sanctification and, uh, sorry, that's kind of creepy though when it, <laughs> it's recording my, my speech. All right. So we, <laughs> yes, it is. We got we got the whisper. We got the whisper on tape. <laughs> All right. Well, Second Corinthians chapter seven, verses seven through eleven is going to be our text this morning. We're going to continue along in our study on sanctification and what it means to change and how to change behavior biblically. We already have talked about not being concerned with just changing outward behavior, like sort of like a Christian version of self improvement. That's uh, that's a that's a, uh, a failure to understand sanctification if we don't do that correctly. We understand sanctification biblically begins with a transformation of the inward man. The heart has to change and has to uh, be completely renewed. So this is a process begun at your, at your salvation and it will continue to the day you meet the Lord in glory when you'll be fully perfected and made entirely sanctified in, those, in that future state and glory. So we're on a road to glory. That's where we get the title of our sermon, our series this week, and we've been looking at uh, confession for the last couple of weeks. If you weren't here last week, I really encourage you, if you can go out to the website and catch up on that last one on confession, we talked about Psalm 51. Confession is not a process that we hurry through, uh, we don't want to hollow it out, make it shallow, okay? Confession is not something like, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I've sinned, please forgive me, amen, and we move on. That's, that's not confession, okay? Uh, that's a maybe maybe a uh, uh, it's maybe a good place to start, but look at Psalm fifty one as a great example and model for us to pattern our confessions after. I said confession is more of a not just an event, but it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process of our lives. We every day we live in a state of constant confession before the Lord, agreeing with God. That's what confession means to have full and ongoing agreement. So that our hearts align with all that God has said about his truth and about our guilt and all that he reveals about his grace. So we said confession is the first change in the direction towards repentance. So confession and repentance are related. Confession you can think of as maybe the beginning of a turn in repentance. Um, At least it's the mind aligning itself with truth and, and God's revelation. When the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin, he awakens our conscience. Wonderful teaching on the conscience Pastor Farrell has given us in a, a, few, uh, a few months ago. He, gave, he taught on the, the conscience. And the conscience is a gift. It's instructed by the Holy Spirit. It's built up in the Word of God. And it's something that you ignore to your peril. Okay, The conscience is there. We ignore it. We can harden it. We can, we can sear it. I was going to say cauterize it. We can... Um, make it insensitive to things. And by doing that, we are hardening our own hearts in sin. And the Holy Spirit's provoking and accusations um, uh, can actually, if they're long ignored, sin will take a root and bury it deep into your soul and it'll latch hold of you. And it becomes what we call habituated. That's just the term we mean. That means that sin by practicing it over and over and over again becomes a learned practice and habit. Many of us have had the struggle with habituated sin, sin that we practice over and over again, and have found it very difficult to extricate and dislodge and uproot sins like that in our hearts. So um, 
We may confess them constantly, but learning how to actually repent. And then next week we'll talk about mortification, how to actually aim at the root of sin and actually and kill it, uh, to kill sin at its roots. And um, there's lots of scriptures telling us about that. Romans 8.13 tells us that if we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. So we're, calling, we're going to talk about waging war effectively against sin. If you've ever been like, like me, and I'm sure several saints throughout the ages, we've struggled with getting rid of sin, and it's been a hard-fought battle. So I'm going to help you, hopefully give you some practical things to talk about that. So... The terrifying reality is that the more sin gets a hold of you, it, it actually weakens your ability to wrestle free and cut loose from its control on your heart, your mind, and your life. The more practiced and habitual the sin becomes, the tighter and stronger sin's hold on your heart will become. I remember hearing a story about a former U.S. Navy SEAL telling, talking about a training exercise he was doing with a couple of his buddies where they were swimming in a, in a cave situation. They were doing a deep dive into an underwater cave and uh, had completed the training exercise, him and a couple of his buddies, and had swam out of the cave and were now on shore. He said that they had begun to take off the wetsuit and the tanks and the, re- and the breather and all of that, the apparatus that he used to, to survive there, and set it on the, on the bank when he remembered that he had left a piece of equipment back in the cave. And so thinking, you know, being a tough young Navy SEAL, he thought, well, it's just 65 or 70 feet over there. I'll just gulp a big breath of air, and I'll swim in there without any of my equipment. And so sure enough, I guess a, a, full, a foolish move, he, he did that. He began to swim, swim back in to that cave. He found the piece of equipment, and when he lifted it up, he realized his foot had gotten entangled in some line that was left behind in the training exercise. And it was like a cinch that went around his ankle, and the harder he pulled, the tighter that rope got on his foot. And as soon as he began to realize what was going on, he had to... He was being kept submerged, and that his, his first instinct was, I'll just swim harder against this line, and I'll just uh, fight, and I'll pull, and hopefully that line will break. So he realized the tighter and the harder he pulled, the tighter that line got. He began to dig into his leg, and so he began to thrash and flail, and as he began to feel the overwhelming fear of drowning start to settle in, he continued to struggle against the line. He began to feel helpless, and the worse it, the worse it got, kept getting kept getting more and more tangled. But then he remembered something that his Navy SEAL training had brought to him, that taught him. Every SEAL carries one essential item with them their entire lifetime, their entire training while they're in the field. Everywhere he goes, he has this one essential item, his K-bar, that long knife that you see, like think of Rambo's knife, right? That knife is always on their person. So Fortunately, when he had taken off his wetsuit, he'd taken off the rescue breather and the tanks, he had left behind on his waist and on his thigh, he had left his K-bar knife. And as he's struggling for the last few seconds of consciousness and air, he reaches into his pocket and pulls out that K-bar knife, slices the line, and with the last remaining energy, he floats to the surface just in time. Providentially, uh, the Lord kept him alive, and uh, he was able to slip through the knot of, of that had gripped his gripped his life, and surely would have taken his life. So here's the point. When sin slips a knot over your soul and cinches down, your attempts to free yourself and your plans to shake free, to manage the situation that you're going through, and to make that sin uh, removed from your life, your self-attempts to get free of that is only going to make the sin lodge deeper. It's only going to make it harder to get free. Your attempts to do hard, do better, work harder, try 
harder, it's only going to create a greater problem for you. Keep as many laws as God can, uh, as God's, uh, keep as many of God's laws as you can. Try to be a moral person. Anything you can do to think how you can get free of the death grip sin has on your soul, it's only going to increase your battle with sin even the more. And all of the self-righteous attempts that you have to battle your sin are going to only end up getting you killed. That's the reality. That's how we don't think of our sin in those kinds of terms of life and death. But your only hope for the your only hope in those situation of battle of sin is to take the K bar of God's word and to begin to cut free from the entangling mess that you've made in your sin. His word is a sharper than a two edged sword, and it can, it's the only thing that you have that can set you free. Just like our Navy SEAL friend had to repent, that is to change his mindset and take a drastically different approach to his life threatening situation. So you too must repent while you still have time and breath in your body. So that's what I'm trying to tell you. You've got access to the K-bar, God's word, and it's the last and only hope you've got to get totally free from your habitual sin. And you'd be a fool to, you'd be a fool to neglect it. You're a goner if you refuse it, and you're running out of time. Luke chapter 13, verses 3 through 5 tells us that, uh, 3 and 5, Jesus went about telling people, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So we see... Um, Pardon me. We see this message of repentance. Oh, hang on a moment. Pardon me. Um, we see this message of repentance is clearly is marked in God's word from the uh, from Jesus' message from the first message he preached. He preached repentance. I'm going to get there in just a minute. Sorry, I realized I started with last week's PowerPoint. Here we go. Okay. Do I have the old version here? Momentarily, just bear with me here. I can't take pictures this fast, you know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to break out of the session here just a minute to find my right point because you're going you're to want these scripture verses, and I'm going to at least put them up there for you to view. Pardon me. I thought here. Just a moment. Okay, well, it's not, this is not the slideshow that I thought it was, but we were to use it anyway, okay? That's going to be weird, but this is what happens when you uh, come up here quickly and don't look close. Hey, you're still recording me. All right, here we go. This is, the, this is what I wanted you to see. Um, all right, so let's go back here. Here's where I want you to be. All right, here we go. Repentance is uh, shown in the truly genuine, shown to be truly genuine in the fruits that follow your follow as a result. And then I was going to say here, Jesus' first sermon, from the time that Jesus began to preach, the Bible says his first message, the first word of his first message was, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." This message of repentance characterizes all truly biblical and Christian preaching. Uh, it's, a mess, it's a word that's not often used because it seems to imply a, a very confrontive type of preaching, doesn't it? But the reality is, you and I, whenever we hear the word of God preached, whenever the word of God's open, there's a, a, a change that must take place. There's a decision that must be made. Uh, it, there is something critical for our mindset to be changing, okay? And it was Jesus' last sermon. It says, and he said to them, as he, 
had uh, ascended out of their sight. It says, and thus it is written that Christ should suffer and rise and again in, in, from the dead for the, after the third day. And that the repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name unto all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. So here we have the commissioning of the message to the apostles. What was their message? Repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, message of repentance. So in Second Chronicles, or Second Corinthians, pardon me, Second yeah, Corinthians chapter seven, we want to look at repentance. Now the scriptural term for repentance is the word metanoieo, which means nothing to most of us, but it has the idea of to change the mind, to change the mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a definite change in direction. Repentance does not mean perfection, does not mean make your life perfect or make your life sinless. It is a reversal of the way you've been perceiving your problems and perceiving your sin issue and your standing with God and totally altering your mind to reckon, to reckon with the truth of, your, of what God has said about your standing with him. It's a repentance requires a significant change to take place. It's not a whimsical change of opinion, okay? I used to like, I don't know, I used to like cookies and cream ice cream, and now I like butter pecan or something because I'm getting old. I don't know. Something like that. That's a whimsical change of mind, but that's different from what's being talked about here. Repentance is shown to be truly genuine in the fruits that follow as a result. The Greek word for repentance, um, we are told, in, uh, do I have the, yeah, I'd, I'll skip through that for a minute. So what repentance is, is called here in, the, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses, uh, we're going to begin in verse 10. It's called godly, it's called worldly sorrow. So look at this. Verse 10, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians, it says this, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. What avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Now, I cut into the passage a little sooner than I was hoping to, but if you back up with me, look at verse number 9. Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians before, 2 Corinthians, and uh, his letter was quite severe and had a lot of um, charges against them for things that they had done and sin that they needed to repent of. And they had responded... Well, actually, he had responded really well to that letter. In verse 9, Paul, seeing their response, he says, For now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. You see how there's a distinction made between just feeling sorry and actually sorrowing all the way to its intended result, which is repentance? He says, I'm glad that you sorrowed all the way to repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So he just, he's contrasting this idea of a, uh, of a kind of worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. And there are five signs of worldly sorrow that I want to just quickly point out with you this morning. Five signs of worldly sorrow. And first one I want to show you what repentance is not. Repentance, um, each of these five characteristic signs that we're looking at here this morning... Each of these always seem to present very similarly to true repentance. Okay, 
In other words, um, someone claims to repent or they start to show some signs of maybe perhaps coming around to the truth about some of the sin they've committed or they've hurt another individual and they start to become aware of that. Some of the things you'll see may initially present as good repentance, but may in fact not be fully biblical repentance. How do you discern the difference between true and false repentance? That's that's what I want to examine with you under this, this topic, this point here. This instead would be worldly sorrow. Even though it presents like godly sorrow, it is actually not biblical repentance in actual truth. Okay. Even though you'll notice each of these five characteristic signs that we're going to look at don't appear to be totally inconsistent with true repentance, because surely true, true repentance will actually bring forth some of these things we're going to look at. However... True repentance will, in fact, more than likely exhibit all five of these together, not just one or two in isolation. Okay? It's important to recognize that. And why is that they, they appear all together? Because divine grace brings these fruits out in your heart and your life through true repentance. Repentance that only has one or two of these characteristic marks is just what I call shallow. Shallow repentance, if it's even repentance at all. So if these indicators appear in isolation from each other, they should not be mistaken for the genuine biblical variety of repentance. You might be tempted to give yourself credit for trying to change, but if they aren't changed, if not all of these uh, ideas are present or uh, made uh, visible, then perhaps worldly, worldly repentance is what we really are observing. First thing we notice, first sign of, God, of worldly sorrow, that is, is just realization. People think that realization of a sin or the awareness of a sin, is just, just the same thing as actual repentance. I know when we sin, we violate God's law. We have the law of God in our conscience, and so when we do that, that we sense a feeling of shame and guilt. And just because we feel guilty, though, our sense of our own shame, uh, we, we will begin to feel sorry for, for what we have done, usually because we feel sorry for ourselves, not for having violated the law of God or having offended the Lord, but because it makes us feel poorly. This sense of guilt, instead of driving us to Christ, usually turns itself inward. And there's lots of varieties of this, lots of examples of this kind of sorrow, where it's just not repentance, it's a realization. You see this in the case where Elijah had spoken a word of judgment to Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21, and told Ahab, listen, because of the wicked things you have done, you will die a horrible, a horrible death. And because of that, Ahab took that to heart and became very sorrowful. Look at what happened here. He, he came to a realization. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted, and he lay in sackcloth. Man, this looks like repentance. This is traditionally what they would do. You know, Don all the peril of outward mourning and sorrow. But, and he goes about despondently. This drives someone into a state of despair and um, sadness, okay, maybe depression. But then the next verse tells us, and then Ahab began to plot how he, he went to Jezebel, and they together began to plot how they were going to get Elijah. So you'll see it presented initially like repentance, and then it really in the aftermath and in the follow-through, it revealed itself to be worldly sorrow, right? You see this again here with Esau. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, it says, and that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. You know the story here. Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, 
For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for tears. Sought it with tears. So here's an example of repentance that even shows itself in tears, regret, mournfulness. He came to a realization that of the foolish thing he had done, and yet this was not true repentance, according to the biblical author here. Another example is the Pharisees. The Pharisees, say, uh, Jesus speaking about them, says here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say unto you, they have their reward in full. Okay, So the Pharisees even would make a big pretense about their repentance in the, making their face look gloomy and their, making their outward appearance look like my father this morning. Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, but no, I took another slam at him, so I'll probably get that back, I'm sure. Uh, but no, you make your, the outward appearance is no indicator of the inward realities here. And so uh, there's a, there is an example there for us of just a realization. The second kind is, a, I, I moved quickly there, regret or remorse is not repentance. Okay, just feeling sorry or having a sense of regret or remorse is not the same as repentance. Okay, you probably have, can identify this. Even though they both may have a sign of evidence of tears and mournfulness and sadness, nothing is, we don't really know what the wellspring of those tears is really revealing. An example of this is uh, Judas and Peter. <laughs> Judas and Peter both denied Christ, didn't they? They both wept bitterly. They both showed they had come to the realization, and they had both experienced a great remorse. Look at Judas. He says, "Then when in Matthew twenty-seven three through five says, then when Judas had betrayed him, saw that he had been that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood.' But they said, What is that to us? See that to yourself.' And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple and sanctuary and departed." And he went away and hanged himself. So there's a sadness and a remorse there, clearly evidenced by that. Then there's Peter's repentance. Peter remembered the word which the Lord had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So we see both these men experienced regret and remorse. One of them ended up evidencing it was just worldly sorrow, and the other one said it showed it to be godly sorrow. Because one, instead of giving, uh, sacrificing his life, the other, one, uh, the other one gave his life to Christ for the remainder of his time and, and served him until his death. So the outcome really proved to see which one was true. It, it took time. You hear Pastor Farrell say this all the time. Time and truth walk together, right? So time reveals the, what that repentance is made of. What the, what's the metal of that repentance? Is it really true? Uh, you'll, you see that played out in the aftermath of the life, okay? So there's a big difference between feeling sorry for getting caught. If you have kids, you know this. Difference between feeling sorry for getting caught and feeling true, genuine sorrow unto repentance. So self-pity is not the same thing as repentance. Although it may be appearing sorrowful, it is still just remorse. Remorse and regret are not repentance. Okay, third one, we have restitution. Restitution. Now, restitution, that's the idea of Making things right. Though I have 
committed a sin, perhaps I've sinned against my spouse or sinned against some other person in my church, I've done some damage, uh, some real damage, now I might be motivated to try to do what I can to set that to right. Uh, whether that might be uh, buying some candy and some flowers, showing up, taking my wife, you know, a gift home from work, okay? Does that indicate true repentance has taken place? Well, maybe. As I said before, some of these things present similarly, and it might mean repentance, or it might just be an intent to try to curry the favor of my wife so she's no longer mad at me anymore. I said, there's a self-motivated reason here. Rather than restoring a relationship, I'm more interested in making sure that I don't feel the pain of a estranged relationship with someone. Okay? Uh, the law of the Old Testament, tell, uh, by the way, restitution in and of itself is not discouraged by Scripture. We see several times in Scripture, like in Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, where it tells us that um, it was required by the law, that if you had done sin against someone, that uh, it was important that you would not only confess your sin, verse 7 it says here, uh, but that he should make restitution in full for his wrong, and then add to it one-fifth more. Okay? So one-fifth of the value of the damages would be added to it, um, and that would be appropriate to setting that restitution to pay, remunerate, and repay what had been uh, lost, the damages done. Now, that, is that a good thing? It can be when it's done motivated from a divine grace and not from a self-interested, self-protecting motive. Okay? Zacchaeus showed this in extravagance. When he was confronted, or when he came to repentance, Jesus praised him. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have def uh, defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back at four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to, his ha has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. So Zacchaeus recognized his need for restitution. So, yes, restitution is one fruit of repentance. It's not exactly the same thing as repentance. So just so we are aware of that distinction. Five, or four, resolution. Repentance is not just resolving. I will not do that again. I promise myself, I swear, I will never do that again. Uh, you cannot simply swear that you'll do better and move on. Because if you know your own heart, you don't have the potential to make good on the vows you make to yourself. You must not foolishly think that you possess the strength of will simply to make a strategic choice just to avoid it next time. That's because we are doing that usually because we see sin as painful, but we don't really see it as fully sinful. Imagine standing before an earthly judge. Imagine standing before an earthly judge and saying, Judge, I know I did wrong. I'm really, really sorry, and I promise I'll never do it again. Please let me go. What would he probably do? More than likely, he would recognize that this is a ruse to avoid painful circumstances, consequences from my sin, from my infraction of the law. And my resolution would not be very convincing to him to let me off the hook, right? So one thing we need to be careful about is making just resolutions that depend on our own strength to fulfill them. John, uh, Thomas Watson said this, Trust not to a passionate resolution. It's raised in a storm, and it will die in a calm. Your resolutions are not going to hold. They're not going to sustain. Okay? And repentance is not exactly reformation either. It's not self-improvement, desire to reinvent myself or to expend a lot of energy trying to put myself into a different kind of mold. Make a, to turn over a new leaf, we hear. That's a 
humanistic sense in which we think of repentance. It's self-improvement, and it's a far distant cry from real repentance and real sanctification. So what is repentance? I love this. This is a great definition. If you're snapping photos, snap a photo of this one, okay? This is good. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Okay, so your repentance is not something you gin up on your own strength and your own resolve and your own, out of your own remorse and your own sorrow for sin. You're not creating this yourself. It is something that God plants into your heart and you um, are acting out of that reaction. Okay, God is working in your heart to help you repent. Okay, you are responsible, but you're moved by God's operating grace in your life. Okay. And it produces a humility, and it does transform the behavior. Okay? Uh, when there's biblical repentance, there will be fruit in keeping with that. Yes, there will be realizations. There will be remorse. There will be resolutions. There will be restitution and reformation. Those will be things, but it will be produced from the repentant heart, moved by God's divine grace. It's motivated from because we see the sinfulness of our sin and how it offends the Lord. It's not motivated from my pain and my desire to make things go away, make things better, go back to the way it used to be. It's motivated because I recognize my sin is against God primarily. Against you and you only have I sinned, Psalm 51, right? So uh, what are some signs of biblical godly sorrow? I will love to cover these closer with you. They're here in the passage. Eight, or I have seven signs. This is definitely the old one. There are actually eight signs if you look at the passage before you. First one is um, earnestness, which missed my list up here. Earnestness. Earnestness is an eager action to get after the righteousness. When someone truly repents, there's no more indifference. There's no more apathy about the sin. It's like the word, the word earnest comes from the word spude, which means to be speedy about it. Okay? There's a change in the energy and a change in the... Um, the urgency of the action to get make this right. The desire to to uh, repentance means that there um, is uh, a resurgence to join in the effort quickly to to repent and to turn. And there's earnestness. Okay, there's a speediness to that. Secondly, is vindication. See that in Second Corinthians seven verse eleven. What vindication of yourself? He says, it's an unmistakable sign of real repentance is to make an apology. Now, the word apology I'm using here, not just in the sense of saying I'm sorry, but the word here Paul uses is apologion, meaning to give a defensiveness to it. He's not saying I'm defending my sin. I'm not defending what I did, somehow justifying what I've done. But he's saying I'm defending the fact that uh, my sin has ruined my reputation. I'm defending the fact that I need to clear myself of that reputation, or clear myself of that that. Uh, sin. Instead of um, defending my reputation, I seek to clear my reputation. I seek to restore my reputation and character in order to rebuild the trust that I have lost and sacrificed. He wishes to produce proof that he's no longer the person he was engaged in and the sins which he formerly participated in willingly. Indignation is wrath against, not against people who are holding him accountable. It's wrath. It's fear. And I'm sorry, it's wrath against 
the sin that took him, the sin that snared him. It's directed towards his own sin. Fear is another example. Fear is not the fear of being exposed, but the fear of God that keeps me walking in, 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 in transparency and openness and honesty. To, lit, to flee the darkness in the, of a secret life and to live in the light that God calls me to walk in. That's a sign of godly sorrow. You see, longing. Longing is important. Longing is an interesting word here. It's a, the idea of desire. Just like the desires for sin took you into a sin, <laughs> now it's the desire for God that actually um, um, over, uh, counteracts and, and causes a change in direction here. A desire associated that, uh, with a yearning that longs for restoration with God. A desire to be right with God must exceed and overcome the desire for momentary pleasure and seeks after God. Okay, lastly, or last couple here, zeal. Zeal is heated intensity, which means that there's a burning, there's a, there's a overwhelming sensation of like, I, I desire to worship God, I desire to adore him, I want to worship him in fervor, fervent spirit. You, we saw that in Psalm 51 last week, didn't we? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, he says. And then an avenging of wrong. That's the idea of seeking justice and seeking the outworking of uh, righteousness in the situation. It's a powerful motivation there to put things to right and to do as much as lies in your power to, to set that to right. Now, I know that that sounds like, like I told you, restitution is not forbidden in Scripture. And it may be part of your repentance at this, at this idea of avenging the wrong or putting it to right. Um, a repayment that doesn't—it's—it's it's a repayment for the damages done, but it's not necessarily that uh, in, to release you from the debt. It's a token of the change of attitude that has come about in your repentance. This is an attitude of revenge against the sin that got you. That's the idea. And number eight, there's a desire, desire to be demonstrated to be in, innocent. And that word there is hognos or hognos, which means it's related to the word for holy or sanctified. You desire opportunities to demonstrate your commitment to be innocent. This is someone who's not ducking accountability and being playing, playing fast and un, dishonestly with accountability and things like that. This is someone who wants to be demonstrated to be innocent. I want to have that proof. I want my character to be uh, tested and shown to be changed truly. So I ask you, does, does repentance look like this in your life? Is that what your repentance looks like? Does it bear the characteristic markings like this. And unless it does, there will never really be any change. So you need to repent and recognize your need to have these fruits. It's like unsheathing this verse, like the K-bar knife, and recognizing that you need to cut yourself free from the entangling of sin by producing these fruits that are in keeping with repentance. You need to set yourself to, by God's grace, repent after a godly manner. And you want all eight of these distinctive signs of godly sorrow to be unmistakably evident in your life. Now, it's difficult to just throw that at you quickly, but that would be helpful for you to meditate on this verse, work through each of these verses, do a study on that, and see, does your life measure up against what godly sorrow looks like? Time and truth will walk together, as, as Pastor Farrell says, and uh, you want to be eager to cultivate these fruits of repentance. And God help us to do that. Yeah. Instead of praying and asking God to help us repent, we should be praying and asking God to grant repentance. Yeah. 2 Timothy 2.25. That's right. Critical, essential verse 
key verse on repentance. You need to, I should have showed that one, and I had, I had plans to do that. 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. Yeah. Thank you, Father, for, the, for your kindness and your loving kindness and your mercy that bears along with us in our sin. Lord, we just recognize that our repentance is often shallow. It's often powerless because it's a worldly sorrow. Pray, Lord, that you, by your divine grace, grant us repentance, as Brother Mark has just pointed out so helpfully. Pray that these fruits would be apparent, that it would be obvious, and that they would be lasting and permanent. We pray this in Christ's name, by your help, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.